everyone. Oh, thank you for the feedback. That's great. Um, my name is Aiden. If we ever met, one of the pastors here, uh, as you can tell, Pastor Zhang is out of town, uh, speaking at a retreat, and he'll also be attending some meetings in the Chicago area. So please give him your prayers. Uh, so today we're going to take a little break from the Second Samuel series, and uh, we'll look into the book of Hebrews. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to uh, Hebrews 12. Uh, 1 through 11. Uh, it's also on the screen as well. Hebrews 12, 1 through 11. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joys that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplined us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful, peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That is the word of God. Would you bow your heads with me and let us pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, uh, thank you that we can call you our Father. Thank you that you are very present uh, here with us uh, in our highs and lows. Uh, thank you for your word that you still speak to us, even at this very moment. So please use me, Lord. Help me be just humbly deliver your word. Uh, neither add nor uh, subtract from your word, God, so that I can simply deliver your word, and uh, may all of our hearts be opened and softened uh, right now as well, so that we can receive your word and live by it. Thank you, God. In the name of Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I'm sure we're all familiar with uh, the concept of honeymoon period. You know, when we start our new jobs and school and new year, new semester, you know, we have this excitement, 
that things are going to work out well, and you know, we're having a great time, in some sense, having a new chapter in our lives. But as we know, after a certain period, there comes a time and season when things are difficult. So you kind of, you know, you, you almost feel like quitting, and you're having a stressful time, and so on. And I think that's true for Christian lives, too. You know, when Christian uh, starts their journey by putting their faith in Christ, it's exciting. It's, it's, um, it's new. It's, it's hopeful. But again, there comes a time and season where things get tough and you start having all these doubts and, you know, um, some dark seasons too. So today in our passage, <clears throat> I'd like us to look at how God wants us to deal with those times, how we deal with trials and sufferings that make us want to quit and be discouraged. And if you're not a Christian in this room, please know that you're welcome here. And I want this passage to be sort of a apologetic, sort of a defense and showcase of how Christianity deals with you know, evil and suffering in our lives. So that's where we're heading. Um, we got three points. And we'll see that these are three motivations for endurance in the life of faith. It's a basis, purpose, and fruit of endurance. First, basis of endurance. In verse 1, the author of Hebrews, uh, today's book, tells us straightforward that the main thrust of uh, his message. So verse 1, it says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So basically, this author is likening Christian life to a race to run. And he's saying that we are to run it with endurance, meaning you know, we are to finish this race. And this race, as you can tell, is not a competitor race where we have to get ahead of others to, to win, but rather the goal is finishing it. And then he adds uh, in the same verse saying that let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Meaning that this is not just a casual race that you just meander around and coast and somehow cross the finish line and that's it. No, he's saying through this verse, through this line, that this is a serious race. It's a race of life and death where you need to give your all, you need to lay aside and put off anything or everything that hinders you from running well and finishing well. Otherwise, in this race, you will veer off easily and do not finish. It's that kind of race that we are on. And therefore, he calls Christians to run fighting distractions and sins, anything that hinders them, again, from running their race of faith. So now, that's what he's calling us to do. And in the rest of the passage, he will show how we can do this. And again, just like I started earlier, we need some explanation of how we do this because in, in our daily lives, maybe for some of us it's real, there are many discouragements. There are many hindrances and many you know, heartbreaks that we go through. So we need his you know, reasoning why we need to run well and finish well. So let's look first. The first thing that he tells us to do is look to Jesus. Verse 2, he says, 
looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God, the right hand of the throne of God. So we first see that Jesus is our role model, meaning that he also ran a race, he went through the suffering, and, and he also looked forward to the joy set before him, meaning the reward and vindication that was, to, that was to come. And he ran for it, and he finished the race. So when we look at him as Christians, you know, we can be encouraged, feeling perhaps understood and connected. And that is for sure there. But I believe that the author goes further than that, uh, meaning that he wants us to see in Jesus that he is, Jesus is our only hope of this race. Here's what I mean. First, it says, Jesus is the founder of our faith. What that means is that you know, when he died on the cross for us, he founded a way for us to be in this race. Meaning, before his death, there was no way for any human being, you and I, for us to be able to live for the holy God because every good work, the Bible says, is, is tainted with sin. But when Jesus took their sins on the cross, the Christians are now made righteous before God, and now their lives can be acceptable to God. So because of Jesus and his sacrifice, we can now be in the race. We can start the race and run. But not only that, it says Jesus is the perfecter of our faith. Not only did he die for us, he also lived a perfect life of faith for us. You know, like the verse says, he ran the race through the suffering, and he finished the race, and he was vindicated. And the, the gospel says that the perfect life and victory of Jesus becomes ours when one puts their faith in him. That's the exchange. Our sin is on him, and his perfection becomes ours. So what that means is that when he finished the race, he did it for us. He secured the victory for us. And therefore, in him, we will also be able to finish the race. Philippians 1.6 encapsulates this truth well that we just talked about. It says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The beginning and the end is Jesus. And because of him, we can have hope in this race. If you know me, uh, I do not like playing board games. No judgment here, please. Board games, I, I hate them for various reasons. But uh, I still play. I need to make friends. I need to play. It's called the Settlers of Catan. Uh, I believe this game used to be like a CLC game. Uh, a lot of people played. Um, maybe not anymore. But, um, and, and this one day, uh, me and some of our friends in the church, we, we played this game. And uh, somehow we decided to team up uh, and, and into teams of two. And uh, again, I hate games, board games, and you know, I'm a noob, especially when it comes to this, this, this game. Because I don't know, like the, the rules are so complicated and I always forget how it goes. So every time I play, 
even after like millions of times, you know, people explain to me, I, I just don't know how to play. And uh, this day, um, we started playing, and then um, this guy, probably the best player in the room, and he saw me, and he had mercy on me, pity on me. He's like, I'm going to team up with him. So we teamed up, and, and I smiled because, you know, the best guy, best player in the room. And uh, but as you can tell, I was getting all stressed out while playing this game because I just didn't know what I was doing. It's just so complicated. I'm like, oh, man, you know, I just, just want to give up. Then there's this guy, the best player. He knew what he was doing. So he was doing all these like tricks and you know all of that. And guess who won the game? We did. <laughs> I, as a part of the team, won the game. It was awesome. And you see, that's similar to what Jesus does to Christians. To be honest, you know, maybe all of us weren't really interested in this game or this race of Christian life after all. But he made a way. He included us in this race through his death on the cross. And he secured the victory for us so that when we join this race, we can know, we can trust that the victory is secure. And therefore, even through trials and sufferings, the passage is saying that we can endure because we are part of the race that is bound to prevail. So that's the first motivation for our endurance in the Christian race. And second is the purpose of endurance. Verse 3 and 4, it says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So what he's saying is that though their suffering is not as severe as Jesus, um, because Jesus went through blood and death, and yet the, the author acknowledges that Christians go through many sufferings to the point that many of them are in, the, in danger of growing weary and faint-hearted, you know, giving up losing heart. And he acknowledges that. So if that's the reality of life, the question that we perhaps ask is, I mean, we get that we have hope in Jesus, but the sufferings are real. And they're so painful and difficult. So does that mean that God has abandoned us? Does that mean that he does not love us or care for us? And these are important questions. And I think the author of Hebrews here answers it this way, verse 5 and 6. He says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he, whom he receives. Here the author is quoting from Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. And notice here, he translates the words like suffering and trials into the word discipline, the discipline of God's you know, fatherly heart. And that's massive, that's, that's significant because first of all, that means all the trials that Christians go through in their lives have clear 
benevolent purposes. They're not just meaningless events that just suck in, in people's lives. No. God uses them, every single thing, every single trial and tear, for his good purposes. There's a meaning. And second, the discipline means that God is sovereign over evil and is actively working through every single evil that we go through in our lives. And for example, perhaps three categories of you know, evil and suffering that we go through. You know, first, when, when someone sins against us through whatever means, right there, the, the sinner is doing sinful things out of sinful motive. But what he's saying is that right then, God is using that moment, that evil, although it wasn't, it wasn't intended that way, but God is using it for good purposes, for our growth, discipline. And second, when we create pain by our own sin, you know, when we're, you know, just doing foolish things and there's a consequence, there's pain in our lives, although we commit those sins out of sinful motive, again, it's saying that God right there is using it for his good purposes. And, and right there, I want to insert this this truth that if you're a Christian, God never punishes you to do those things because all the punishments are paid for on the cross so that every single suffering that you go through in suffering in, in Christian life is discipline. There's a huge difference there. Punishment versus discipline. And it's for their good. And, and lastly, when, when sickness happens in our lives or in our loved ones. It's happening because of sin, right? Not the sin of, you know, moral agents, but sin happening because sin affects physical bodies too, not just mind and heart. So broken world, that's why there's sickness. And right there, although sickness is coming from sin, God is using it for his good purposes. Every single suffering as a purpose in God's discipline. Probably the best example of this is the story of Joseph. Uh, if you know the story, you know, he was hated by his brothers and got sold into slavery, huge evil there. Uh, but after many struggles, you know, Joseph becomes prime minister and with the God-given wisdom, he um, you know, saves many lives in, in the region and uh, in, in that part of the world. And, and Cam quoted this uh, verse earlier, but uh, Genesis 50, 20, here's aftermath of all this, and Joseph says this to his brothers who wronged him. It says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about many people, that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So right when the brothers were sinning against Joseph, God was using it for his good purposes. And, and God used many other sins that, was, that were done to Joseph in his life to humble him, to grow him, to make him more wise, and that resulted in salvation of many souls. So again, every single suffering has God's purpose of discipline. And I want to pause a little bit here. There's heavy stuff, uh, in my opinion and make some comments um, 
You know, firstly, what we just talked about should not be an excuse to condone sins. Meaning, you know, if damage has been done to us, somebody has sinned against us, we shouldn't say, oh, that's God's good discipline for me. I should be thankful for that sin. I should let that offender go. No. I would say sin is sin. You know, that person has to be confronted, and if, if that person is a Christian, he, has, he or she has to be confronted into repentance. And the second thing I want to mention is that I would try to avoid this discipline language when I were to counsel or comfort somebody, uh, especially when that, when that person is going through deep hurts. I wouldn't go up to that person when that person just went through tragedy and say that it is God's discipline. It would be very unwise, you know, very unloving to say that. Probably the better thing to do would be your presence. But having said that, I believe that what we need to glean from this passage in light of what we just read is, is this, verse 7 and 8. And, and this is the author of Hebrews' conclusion um, that he gets from this Proverbs passage, verse 7 and 8. It says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So what he's saying is that when we go through any sufferings and trials, we're encouraged to see that those tough things are proof that God sees us as his children, that he cares for us, he loves us, and he wants to discipline us through those things because God is a good father. He's not a neglectful father. He is involved in his children's lives and his well-being. So what he's saying is, in the middle of our suffering, when we are wrestling with God, God, why is this happening? Through tears, he's encouraging us to see and remind ourselves and let God speak to us through this passage that God's saying to us, hey, I love you. You are my, children, my child. If you're not my child, I will not be giving you this discipline and struggle. I care for you. And that's what we are to um, wrestle with uh, our sufferings. Um, if you go to the next slide, it's a picture of uh, my Bible. Um, and uh, there, if you can see, I don't know, uh, but it says, God loves me, exclamation mark. And it says, November 12th, 2015. Uh, it's kind of random, but if you can see the, the bottom of that, uh, it's, it's the very passage that I'm preaching from right now. Um, I, I can't remember the specifics of this day, but I do remember that I was really struggling with uh, some difficulties. Again, I don't remember the details. But when I got to this passage, I just couldn't help but to hear God's voice through this passage saying that, Aiden, you see this trial right now? You see this tear and struggle? It's a very proof that I love you. And I didn't want to forget, so I wrote it down with the, the stamp of you know, day two. 
so, so I can remember over and over. And it's, it's my silly attempt to, to remember this, but man, the Bible and God is clear over and over. He wants us to see through those struggles that we are his children when we go through his disciplines. And I want to say this too. The Bible says that when one puts their faith in Christ, he or she becomes adopted child of God. And Christians know that in their head. But it's only when, I believe, we go through times of trials and testing, that's when the head knowledge becomes heart and experiential knowledge. And that's been the reality for me and for many that I know. So Christians go through suffering, again, not because, again, the, the, the answer to the question earlier, we're suffering not because God has abandoned us, but it's the opposite. Suffering happens because very reason for suffering is that he loves his children and is disciplining them as his children. The third motivation for endurance is fruit of endurance. Uh, verse 9, it says, Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? So here, the author is continuing the thought process from the previous verses. Um, you know, he's appealing first to our own experience with our own earthly parents. And here, I want to be sensitive because, you know, maybe some of us had some tough experience with our earthly parents. Um, maybe um, the discipline that you received from them were unfair and not uh, edifying. So I believe here that the author is appealing to the ideal situation where the earthly father disciplines um, his children uh, with the, you know, benevolent mindset. And he's saying that if that's the case, then that, that parent, you know, deserves our respect and submission. And then he says, it's using that logic of, you know, lesser or greater. If that's the case with the earthly parents, then does it make sense that you give much more, in fact, the full submission and surrender to this heavenly father? And he says, father of spirits. What that means is that the God is transcendent and sovereign Father who is all-wise. And he says, we will live, meaning if we listen to this Father, this Heavenly Father, you know, we will have the fullest life available. And then he continues in verse 10. He says, for they disciplined, the earthly fathers, fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seems, seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Again, continuing that, that, that logic, the, the earthly fathers, even the best ideal ones, you know, they do what they think is best to their children, but they fall short. They're subjective in their discipline. But however, again, God, if he is truly transcendent and sovereign, all-wise God, all-wise Father, when he disciplines us, his intention and the result will be the best thing possible. Because, again, he is father of spirits. 
transcendent father. And, and, and he says in that verse that the best thing for us that he knows that he wants to give us is that we share in his holiness. And here, the question is, what does it mean that we share his holiness? And here, please bear with me as I unpack uh, this concept theologically so we can have full picture. Uh, there are two types of holiness. One is definitive, and the other is progressive. Definitive holiness is what Christians get as soon as they put their faith in Christ. Hebrews 10.10 says, And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So at conversion, the Christian immediately is made holy and righteous in God's sight because of Jesus. And now this is more of a legal, positional holiness, um, but this is real. But we know, even though we are made righteous and holy, we know in our own lives because of sin, because of the sin that remains until Jesus comes back to take it away, you know, we cannot fully reflect uh, God's holy character in our character. So there is a discrepancy there. So it's real that we are holy positionally, but there is a process of us becoming what we already are. And that is progressive holiness. And Hebrews 10.14 captures that paradox pretty well. It says, For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. You see that? It says, He's already perfect, but he still needs to become or to be made holy. Progressive holiness. And, and, and the result, that the progressive holiness will become perfect only when we finish the race, when Jesus comes back. And I think the help, helpful illustration for this concept is, uh, just imagine that, that you're a child and you're given this oversized suit. And that is a picture for um, Christ's righteousness. So again, just imagine that. You know, you're, you're like a small child and you're like covered in this oversized suit. And there, of course, you're not fitting that outfit. Still, you're covered. So when God sees that, he's calling you holy and righteous. And yet, logically we know we have to grow into that suit. Growth is involved. And, and in the end, when you fit into the suit perfectly, that means the outfit matches who you are inside. And that's what we are shooting for. That's what progressive holiness means. So now, back to the passage. Progressive holiness is what's viewed in this passage. Then. That the author of Hebrews is saying that God grows our holiness in order to fit into the suit through what? Through his discipline. Meaning without discipline, without trials and sufferings and tears and dark times, we cannot grow. We cannot fit into that suit. There's no other way. I mean, I, I wish I could tell you that there's another, another way. I wish that was true in my life. I wish I, I don't have to go through the suffering in my life to become holy like Jesus, like God, but there's no other way. 
and Christian journalist Malcolm Murgridge says this in that vein. He says, indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness, whether pursued or attained. It's testimony here. We need discipline to become holy. And God is giving us that. And, and here, verse 11, the author concludes this passage saying that for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And here, what's beautiful in this verse to me is that the author, he acknowledges that it's tough. It's painful. He's not denying our pain. But he's saying that the pain now is worth it because there's beauty coming. That the holiness that we will achieve through this discipline will be beautiful. And he's calling us to endure then. Um, lately, one thing I uh, enjoy doing uh, is listening to uh, my wife playing piano. I know, maybe Pastor John will say, oh, you're, you're talking about your wife again. Um, but can't help. Well, uh, yeah, I love listening to her uh, play piano. Uh, she's been playing that for many years now, you know, I think ever since I'm three years old. Um, and uh, I don't know, it's, it's really soothing to me. I, I love classical music, and, you know, she, she plays it, and it's just, like, so beautiful. And I, I often just sit down on my couch and just, like, listen and really feel, you know, soothed and relaxed. And I love those times. And, I, and I, one day I wondered, man, it sounds so good right now, but I wonder what kind of training and discipline that she had to go through to get to where she is right now. And I asked her, and obviously she, she tells me that the disciplines were rigorous and tedious and sometimes painful and, you know, boring, like all of that, right? Um, but now I appreciate that period that she went through because, because of that period, her and I can enjoy this beauty of music. And using that lesser, greater logic again. If that's the case for music, how much more do we need God's discipline in order to achieve the greatest beauty, the incomparable beauty of becoming made like God in our character? And like my dad used to always say, no, cro no cross, no crown. No cross, no crown. Beauty involves painful discipline. And I have two applications on this point, and uh, I'll finish. And first is, in light of what we just talked about, I think this calls us to really reorient um, our priority. Meaning, you know, naturally our priorities are, you know, comfort. We want things to go well in our lives, you know, according to our plan. And after four years of college, career, family, on and on. But man, God's priority seems to be not that. His priority 
seems to be our holiness. So that it makes sense that he would bring suffering to our lives. Because that's his goal, which is different from our goal. And that leads me to my second application, is that if that's true, if we really believe all this, it, it takes faith through perhaps tears. If we believe this, then perhaps our question should be that when we go through the hardships, our question should be, what is God teaching me? What is God trying to grow me in through this painful suffering? Instead of, God, do you hate me? In other words, if we trust his goodness and love as our father, our question should be, how is God trying to make me more beautiful like Jesus through this experience? For me, um, actually, the past few months have been pretty rough. Um, uh, I got a phone call from one of my family members, uh, just kind of out of nowhere. Um, and, and they were saying that uh, they're having some mental health issues and, and told me, like, all the messy consequences that came because of that. Um, and I was shocked. I, I still remember, you know, I was at, at Costco and just shopping with, with Deb and um, just really shocking. And I just became really sad um, because it's a family member that I love and... Um, just didn't know what to do. All I could do was pray. Uh, and then in that season, um, like all these crazy things, all the tough situations kind of came, popped up, like back to back. And I think at some point, I, I literally cried to God, God, give me a break. I'm suffering here. This is so hard to bear. And, and that's been just, just really tough on my heart this, this past few months. And, and I want to process that with you right now. I mean, in a lot of this passage, um, do I really believe that those things happen because God loved me? If that's true, then I can, with difficulty, choose to be thankful, even joyful, knowing that the result will be good. And the fact of the matter is, because of these difficult times, I can tell you that I became, I came closer to God. It was almost like a megaphone, like C.S. Lewis says, that, he, that God used to get my attention. Aiden, come back to me. You need to be intimate with me all over again. And I hope and pray that I'll continue to see his goodness and, and persevere through this. Um, and I don't know, in, the, in this room, I don't know what you're going through. Uh, I think whenever I meet with uh, some of you, I get to hear your stories, and it's encouraging, and I know some of you are going through some hard times right now. Um, would you um, pray with me you know, as we look into... Um, these struggles that are real and yet look to them with the lens of the truth of the Bible that says God is your Father.
the one God's best for you. And you can overcome because of Jesus. He secured the victory for you. Let's pray together. Spend some time um, in, our, in prayers. I think whatever we look into the word, it's uh, the time that God uses to speak directly to us. Um, and, and I believe that he just spoke to, uh, to us, to me. That this truth is not just to be stored in our brain, but I believe that it should be lived out and trusted. And I don't want to make it sound like it's a robotic thing that you put in this truth and then somehow you'll feel better. Um, the lives do not work like that. Um, and yet, the Holy Spirit, the way He works is so magnificent, isn't it? He can use times like this to um, make the, the truth of the word real and bear fruit in our hearts so that we can continue on and so that we can see things different in our lives. Would you pray uh, for a few moments before we sing uh, the song and close? Let's, let's come before God just between you and us, uh, you, and, you and God, just, just between um, these two people in love. Heavenly Father, um, thank you that uh, you are our Father. Um, thank you that the sufferings and hardships do not have the last word, but you are sovereign over them. And even though we don't know why exactly those things are happening in our lives, we, we, we want to trust God that you know, that you are in control. God, touch each one of our hearts and help us to grow, to know you more, especially through our sufferings. Thank you, Jesus. Let's spend a little more time in prayer uh, before we close in Lord's Prayer. I just want to encourage us to pray for uh, first ourselves that as we leave this place, as we go back to our respective places and perhaps for some of us uh, tough uh, places, Let's pray that God would um, seal this truth in our hearts um, so that we can remember um, this truth more for our days and weeks. Also pray for perhaps other people that you know are going through hard times um, that God would uh, touch their hearts as well. Let's pray for those two things and I will finish.